0: Chapter Six, Part One of the Assault on Mount Everest, Nineteen Twenty Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Assault on Mount Everest, Nineteen Twenty Two by Various Authors. The Highest Point by George Mallory. Part One. My first recollection of the morning of May twenty is of shivering outside the porters' tents. It is not an enviable task at twenty-three thousand feet, this of rousing men from the snugness of their sleeping-bags between five and six a.m. One may listen in vain for a note of alertness in their response. The heard notes will not echo the smallest zest for any enterprise. On this occasion, the replies made to my tender inquiries and encouragements were so profoundly disappointing, that I decided to untie the fastenings of the tent, which were as nearly as might be hermetically sealed. In the degree of somnolence and inertia prevailing, I expected the abnormal. Soon I began to make out a tale of confused complaints. The porters were not all well. The cause was not far to look for. They had starved themselves of air during the night." The best chance of a remedy was fresh air now, and a brew of tea, which could easily be managed. Meanwhile Norton had been stirring, and while I retired to dress, he began to busy himself with preparations for our own breakfast. Tea of course was intended for us, too, and further two tins of spaghetti had been reserved to give us the best possible start for the day. But one small thing had been forgotten. Those precious tins had lain all night in the snow. They should have been cuddled by human bodies, carefully nursed in the warmth of sleeping bags. Now their contents were frozen stiff and beyond extraction even by an ice axe. Even so, it might be supposed a little boiling water would put all to rights. Had a little sufficed, I should omit to tell the doleful tale. Only very gradually were the outer surfaces thawed, permitting the scarlet blocks, tomato sauce was an ingredient, to be transferred to another saucepan, where they had still to be thawed to homogeneous softness and afterwards heated to the point required for doing justice to the genius of Mr. Hines. As the expenditure of treasured hot water merely for thawing spaghetti involved more melting of snow to water and boiling of water for indispensable tea, the kitchen maid's task was disagreeably protracted. And the one among us, Norton, who most continuously and stubbornly played the man's part of kitchen maid, sitting upon the snow in the chill early morning, became a great deal colder than any one should be with a day's mountaineering in front of him. Of our nine porters, it was presently discovered that five were mountain sick in various degrees, only four were fit to come on and do a full day's work carrying up our camp. The whole of our reserve was already exhausted before we had advanced a single step up the north ridge. But pessimism was not in the air this morning. We had won through our various delays and difficulties, we had eaten and enjoyed our wonderful breakfast, and after all we were able to make a start about 7.30 a.m. The reserve had already been of use, without it we should have been obliged to remain in camp waiting for sick porters to recover, and counting our stores. Morrishead, who, by the testimony of good spirits, seemed the fittest of us all, was set to lead the party. I followed with two porters, while Norton and Somerville shepherded the others on a separate rope. In a short half-hour we were on the north coal itself, the true white neck to the south of those strange blocks of ice, and looking up the north ridge from its foot." The general nature of what lay ahead of us can readily be appreciated from this point of view. To the right, as you look up, the great northern slopes of Mount Everest above the main Rungbuk Glacier were slightly concave. The northeastern facet to the left is also concave, but much more deeply and especially more deeply in a section about 1,500 feet above the North Col consequently the ground falls away more suddenly on that side below the ridge the climber may either follow the crest itself or find a parallel way on the gently receding face to right of it the best way for us we soon saw was not to follow the crest of snow or even the snow slopes immediately to the right for these were merged after a little interval in the vast sweep of broken rocks forming the north face of the mountain and at the junction between snow and rocks was an edge of stones, stretching upwards for perhaps 1,500 feet at a convenient angle. Loose stones that slip as he treads on them are an abomination to the climber's feet, and only less fatiguing than knee-deep, sticky snow. We presently found those stones agreeably secure. Enough snow lay among them to bind and freeze all to the slope, we were able to tread on firm, flat surfaces without the trouble of kicking our feet into snow, no sort of ground could have taken us more easily up the mountain. The morning, too, was calm and fine. Though it can hardly be said that we enjoyed the exercise of going up Mount Everest, we were certainly able to enjoy the sensation so long as our progress was satisfactory. But the air remained perceptibly colder than we could have wished the sun had less than its usual power, and in the breeze which sprang up on our side, blowing across the ridge from the right, we recognized an enemy, quote, the old wind in the old anger, quote, the devastating wind of Tibet. The wolf had come in lamb's clothes, but we were not deceived. Remembering bitter experiences down in the plains, now ten thousand feet below us, we expected little mercy here, we only hoped for a period of respite. So long as this gentle mood should last, we could proceed happily enough until we should be obliged to fight our way up. We had risen about 1,200 feet when we stopped to put on the spare warm clothes which we carried against such a contingency as this. For my part, I added a light Shetland woolly and a thin silk shirt to what I was wearing before under my closely woven cotton coat. As this outer garment, with knickers to match, was practically windproof, and a silk shirt too is a further protection against wind, with these two extra layers I feared no cold we were likely to meet. Mooreshead, if I remember right, troubled himself no more at this time than to wrap a woolen scarf around his neck and he and I were ready and impatient to get off before the rest. Norton was sitting a little way below with his rucksack poised on his lap. In gathering up our rope, so as to have it free when we should move on, I must have communicated to the other rope some small jerk, sufficient at all events to upset the balance of Norton's rucksack. He was unprepared, made a desperate grab, and missed it. Slowly, the round, soft thing gathered momentum from its rotation. The first little leaps down from one ledge to another grew to excited and magnificent bounds, and the precious burden vanished from sight. For a little interval, while we still imagined its fearful progress until it should rest for who knows how long on the snow at the head of the wrong Book glacier, no one spoke. "'My rucksack gone down the coude. Norton exclaimed with simple regret. I made a mental note that my warm pajama legs, which he had borrowed, were inside it. So if I were to blame, I had to share in the loss. A number of offers in woolen garments for the night were soon made to Norton, after which we began to explain what each had brought for comfort's sake, and I wondered whether my companion's system of selection resembled mine." as I never can resolve in cold blood to leave anything behind, when each article presents itself as just the one I may particularly want, I pack them all into a rucksack and then pull out this and that more or less at random, until the load is not greater than I can conveniently carry. Even so, I almost invariably find that I have more clothing in reserve than I actually use. However, we had no time to spare for discussing the dispensation of absolute justice between the various claims of affection and utility among a man's equipment. We were soon plodding upwards again, and had we been inclined to tarry, the bite of the keen air would have hurried us along. The respite granted us was short enough. The sun disappeared behind a veil of high clouds, and before long, gray tones to match the sky replaced the varied brightness of snow and rocks, and soon now we were struggling to keep our breath and leaning our bodies against a heavy wind. We had not the experience to reckon exactly the dangers associated with these conditions. We could only look to our senses for warning, and their warning soon became obvious enough. Fingertips and toes and ears all began to testify to the cold. By continuing on the windward flank of the ridge just where we were most exposed, we should incur a heavy risk of frostbite, and the whole party might be put out of action. It was clear that something must be done and without delay. The best chance was to change our direction. Very likely we should find less wind, as is often the case, on the crest itself, and in any case we must reach shelter on the leeward side at the earliest possible moment. While Morse had stopped, at last submitting so far as to put on a sledging suit, which is reputed to be the best possible protection, I went ahead, abandoned the rocks, and steered a slanting course over the snow to the left. Unlike the softer substance we had met in the region of the North Coal, the surface here was hard. On this smooth slope the blown snow can find no lodgment, cannot stay to be gathered into drifts, and the little that falls there is swept clean away. The angle soon became steeper, and we must have steps to tread in. A strong kick was required to make the smallest impression in the snow. It was just the place where we could best be served by crampons, and be helped up by their long steel points without troubling ourselves at all about steps. Crampons, of course, had been provided among our equipment, and the question of taking them with us above Camp 4 had been considered. We had decided not to bring them. We sorely needed them now. And yet we had been right to leave them behind, for with their straps binding tightly round our boots, we should not have had the smallest chance of preserving our toes from frostbite. The only way was to set to work and cut steps. The proper manner of cutting one, in such a substance as this, is to take but one strong blow, tearing out enough snow to allow the foot to finish the work as it treads in the hole. Such a practice is not beyond the strength and skill of an amateur in the Alps but even if he can muster the power for this sort of blow at a great altitude, he will soon discover the inconvenience of repeating it frequently. He will be out of breath and panting, and obliged to wait, so that no time has been gained after all. The alternative is to apply less force. Three gentle strokes, as a rule, will be required for each step. To cut a staircase in this humble manner was by no means impossible as was proved again on the descent, up to 25,000 feet. But the same rules and limitations determine this labor as every other up there. The work can be done, and the worker will endure it, provided sufficient time is allowed. It is haste that induces exhaustion. On this occasion, we were obliged to hurry. Our object was to reach shelter as soon as possible. In a wind like that, on a bare snow-slope, a man must take his axe in both hands to meet the present need. Future contingencies will be left to take care of themselves. The slope was never steep, the substance was not obdurate, but when at length we lay on the rocks and out of the wind, I computed our staircase to be three hundred feet, and at least one of us was very tired." I cannot say precisely how much time passed on this arduous section of our ascent. It was now 11.30 a.m. The aneroid was showing 25,000 feet, compared with a reading of 23,000 on the north coal. The rise of 2,000 feet had taken us in all three and a half hours. For some reason, Morsehead had been delayed with two or three of the porters, and as the rest of us now sat waiting for them, we began to discuss what should be done about fixing our camp. It had been our intention to reach 26,000 feet before pitching the tents, but it was evident that very few places would accommodate them. We had already seen enough to realize how steeply the rocks of this mountain dip towards the north, with the consequence that even where the ground is broken, the ledges are likely to prove too steep for camping." we must pass the night somewhere on this leeward side, and we had little hopes of finding a place above us. However, at about our present level, well marked as the point of junction between snow and rocks, we had previously observed from Camp 3 some ground which appeared less uncompromising than the rest. A broken ledge offered a practicable line towards this same locality." Whether the decision we came to at this crisis of our fortunes were right or wrong, I cannot tell, and I hardly want to know. I have no wish to excuse our judgment. Who can tell what might have happened had we decided otherwise? And who can judge? Then why should I be at the pains to analyze the thoughts which influenced our decision? It is perhaps a futile inquiry. Nevertheless, it is such decisions that determine the fate of a mountaineering enterprise, and the operative motives or contending points of view may have an interest of their own. Among us there was deliberation often enough, but never contention. There never was a dissentient voice to anything we resolved to do, partly, I suppose, because we had little choice in the matter, more because we were that sort of party." We had a single aim in common, and regarded it from common ground. We had no leader within the full meaning of the word, no one in authority over the rest to command as captain. We all knew equally what was required to be done from first to last, and when the occasion arose for doing it, one of us did it. Some one, if only to avoid delay in action, had to arrange the order in which the party or parties should proceed. I took this responsibility without waiting to be asked. The rest accepted my initiative, I suppose, because I used to talk so much about what had been done on the previous expedition. In practice it amounted only to this, that I would say to my companions, A. Will you go first? B. Will you go second? And we roped up in the order indicated without palaver. Apart from this, I never attempted to inflict my own view on men who were at least as capable as I of judging what was best. Our proceedings in any crisis of our fortunes were uniformly democratic. They were so on the occasion from which I have so grievously digressed. It must not be forgotten that we had just come through a trying ordeal. Nothing is more demoralizing than a severe wind— and it may be that our morale was affected. But I don't think we were demoralized, or not in any degree, so as to affect our judgment. The impression I retain from that remote scene, where we sat perched in discussion, crowding under a bluff of rocks, is of a party well pleased with their performance, rejoicing to be sheltered from the wind, and every one of them quite game to go higher. Perhaps the deciding influence was the weather." A mountaineer judges of the weather conditions almost by instinct, and apart from our experience of the wind, which had already been sufficiently menacing, we knew, so far as such things can be known, that the weather would get worse before it got better. But we could not imagine what might be coming without thinking definitely about the porters. It would be their lot, wherever our new camp was fixed, to return this same day to Camp 4. It was no part of our design to risk even the extremities of their limbs, let alone their lives. Apart from any consideration of ethics, it would not be sensible. No one supposed that this attempt on Mount Everest would be the last of the season, even for ourselves, and if the porters who first completed this stage were to suffer nothing worse than severe frostbite, the moral effect of that injury alone might be an irreparable disaster the porters must be sent down before the weather grew worse, and the less they were exposed to the cold wind, the better. It was 12.30 p.m. before the stragglers who had joined us had rested sufficiently to go on. To fix a camp 1,000 feet higher would probably require, granted reasonably good fortune in finding a site, another three hours, and if snow began to fall or the ridge were enveloped in mist, it would be necessary to provide an escort for the porters. Had we supposed a place might be found anywhere above us, within range on this lee side of the ridge, we might conceivably have accepted these hard conditions and pushed on. Deliberately to choose a site on the ridge, with such a wind blowing and in defiance of every threat in the sky, was a folly not to be contemplated. And our suppositions as to the lee side above us, they were afterwards proved correct, were all unfavorable to going higher. The plan of encamping somewhere near at hand, not lower than 25,000 feet, still left plenty of hope for this time besides building the best foundation for a second attempt. In my opinion, no other alternative was sanely practicable, and I believe this conviction was shared by all when at length we left our niche having conceded so much already to the mountain. End of chapter 6, part 1